Well, today we're going to chat about chat GPT. You know, the raging excitement in the chattering classes about the latest artificial intelligence tool. It is a radical advance in software. It's much more impressive than playing chess with a computer. And But we're being told it promises to create massive unemployment, in particular in areas of so-called knowledge work, precisely the domains the chattering classes work in, which might explain why there's so much hyperbole and anxiety about chat GPT. Look, I've talked about robots, physical robots, in the previous uh, episode of my podcast, you know, the use of real physical anthropomorphic robots, you know, the C-3PO's, the Terminator class robots, if you like, the use of physical robots for physical tasks and the skilled trades. So in this episode, we're going to talk about virtual robots, which is what ChatGPT is and software like that, software that can autonomously perform knowledge functions, you know, things like plot a route for you on a map or uh, recognize what you're saying, like Alexa or Siri voice, or try to recognize what you're saying, understand spoken questions and commands. But this time, uh, the chat GPT class of AI or artificial intelligence, it has taken the performance to a next level. You knew that was inevitable. I mean, that's, that's what computers do. They get better. But start out with what the letters chat uh, GPT mean in the chat GPT. That stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, which is a computer lingo for a powerful computer, basically a supercomputer that iteratively learns, hence the term machine learning, or is trained by looking at patterns, lots of patterns, lots and lots, and over and over again, sort of. And when I say lots, typically the training inputs, the patterns, the words that a uh, artificial intelligence engine has to look at, or the patterns are numbered in the billions, billions of patterns looked at over and over again. The English language is full of patterns. They're, they're rules-driven, grammar rules, and and they're patterns in how things are said. You know, like Shakespeare's Shakespeare's works have work has has a pattern, and there are patterns in PR brochures. You know what the PR flags write for. Uh, Promoting, say, cruise bro- cruises, so the brochures have a flavor, a pattern. Everything has patterns. And all those patterns are abundantly available on the World Wide Web. So you'd think that you could design a computer that could you know, go scraping the World Wide Web for patterns with a set of rules and look at it and, and iteratively learn what's being said, how it's being said, and use that to you know, spew back unique content, if you like, based on the patterns that it's seen, replicate a talk or recognize words, not just listen, recognize how you talk to it, but talk back by typing or, you know, like Siri voice, have a voice. And so that, that, that's essentially I'm being very simplistic, what chat GPT does. And of course, there's a lot of stunts uh, making the rounds using chat GPT because it's, 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 a, you know, it's pretty good. It's pretty, it's a pretty powerful computer. It's a pretty powerful piece of software. In fact, I asked, uh, I asked chat GPT and for those of you out there, who already have an account, you've probably done similar stunts. I asked ChatGPT to write a short PR blurb to promote a Caribbean cruise and to do it in the style of, say, William Shakespeare. Actually, I didn't ask it. I asked one of my sons who has an account with ChatGPT to ask it. But you just ask it. You say, you say type, uh, write, it, write a short PR blurb 
about a Caribbean cruise and style of Shakespeare. And in a fraction of a second, the uh, engine comes back with a unique new uh, blurb in a few words. So in fact, let me read you what ChatGPT wrote when it was asked to do that. And then wrote it in again in a fraction of a second. And you'll excuse me, I'm not an actor, but I'll I'll read it in a quasi-Shakespearean style because that's what it, I asked it to do. So <clears throat> this is the brochure blurb. Hark, good sirs and fair maidens, lend an ear to news of grandeur and luxury rare. A Caribbean cruise doth now appear for those with hearts that do adventure dare. Upon the azure seas, our grand bark shall bear you to fair isles of sand and sun, where comfort and opulence shall embark and memories forever to be one. Period. So there's not bad. You know, I mean, if, if you're a Shakespeare cognoscenti, it's pretty it's pretty good. It's not, you know, it's the right style. It's uh, it's obviously about Caribbean cruise. Uh there's been some other uh, stunts that people have engaged in with Chat GPT. Uh for again, for those of you who are following this, and if you're listening to this podcast, a pretty good chance you've heard about it or following it. Uh Chat GPT uh was put to work to see if it could pass, and it did. Uh, a test for Wharton's MBA school. In fact, somebody else put Chat, chat GPT to work uh, with a medical exam, and it passed. Uh, there's a lot of people doing stunts like that, but they're stunts. Uh, they are indicative stunts, but they're stunts, right? I mean, first of all, uh, the po- fact that a computer passed those tests tells you more about the tests than it does about the power of the computer in some ways, because rudimentary medical exams and rud- rudimentary tests at a, a business school, uh, don't ver- tell you very much about the capacities of the person that took the test or the machine that took the test, or or put differently, you don't know whether the person who passed the medical test is going to become a great surgeon or the person that passed the MBA test is going to become a great business leader. What you do know is they know enough about the basic nomenclature, the rules of the road, so to speak. Uh, but that's all it tells you. It doesn't tell you very much of anything else. Uh, it is an impressive stunt, but it's still a stunt. It's, again, make another analogy. Uh, whether you or a computer passes the written driving test doesn't tell you a thing about whether or not you or the computer will be a winning Formula One race car driver. These are different domains of skill, but they're related and they're important. The, the Passing the test matters. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition to go on to do something else. So it's useful. And it is a big deal. Frankly, I mean, I'm not downplaying that it's a big deal to, to have a have a piece of software in the cloud uh, so easily, so quickly, take on such diverse diverse tasks. You can ask ChatGPT to draw cartoons in the style of, you know, Charles Schultz, Peanuts, and it'll it will do that. Uh, there are some interesting copyright intellectual property uh, issues that arise from this, but it, it can do it. So it is a big deal when you get a computer to finally be good enough to understand basic instruction in English and, it, and come back in the style of which it was asked, whether it, asked, whether it was an, an image or text or voice. The, these are these are significant. The, if you like the stunt that I just described, passing a test or all kinds of tests, uh, those stunts matter. They do, they do tell you something, they're indicative. Uh, stunts, and let me, let me use an analogy because it does help frame what's going on right now with ChatGPT, not it specifically, but about the pivot point where we are at now with respect to artificial intelligence broadly. Uh, the stunt of putting a dozen men on the moon, and they were all men, the Apollo program, 
uh, was impressive, but it was a one-time deal. We're not living on the moon. Nobody's living on the moon. And we haven't been back to the moon even. We're still trying to get back to the moon. It was an incredibly impressive stunt. Uh, in computer terms, let's just say the first time a computer beat a chess master. That was an impressive stunt. But, you know, that was a one-time deal, so to speak. Their computers can still beat grandmasters, but it's not a very useful stunt in a, in a broad sense. It just shows you that you can get a powerful enough computer, you can beat a chess grandmaster, but, you know, sort of impressive stunt, but so what? Um, whereas, well, let's use another example that's, I think, more akin to what's going on with chat GPT. Charles Lindbergh performed a stunt, as, as probably everybody listening knows. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh, the great American aviator, became internationally famous in 1927 when he was the first person to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic Ocean. Remember, his plane was called the Spirit of St. Louis. That was quite a stunt. Uh, but it was, a, it was a stunt. If it was a stunt equivalent to landing on the moon, it would have been impressive but irrelevant. The more impressive stunt, in fact, was later that year, 1927, it, it funded by uh, Guggenheim, one of the Guggenheims, one of the grandson of the original Guggenheim, uh, Charles Lindbergh barnstormed the entire country in the spirit of St. Louis. He flew over a period of 95 days to all 48 states. He went to 82 cities. He did that on the, in the spirit of St. Louis. That, that was a stunt. Um, you can read about that stunt in a lot of different books, but maybe the most interesting one is a book called Guggenheim, because Guggenheim was the guy that funded it. But it's about not about that stunt per se, but Guggenheim's involvement with Lindbergh and his involvement in the launch of commercial aviation. But to come back to the stunt, the stunt of doing that, to be able to fly over a period of months and do it continuously and go to all 48 states, that stunt told you something. It told you we were the technology was good enough now to be on the tipping point of civil aviation being useful, useful for people to fly around the country. That was a big deal. And you know what happened since. Airplanes got better. A, a commercial air service uh, took off, no pun intended, well, sort of intended, from that point forward. So chat GPT is much more akin to the Lindbergh's national barnstorming stunt than it is to going to the moon or flying across the Atlantic. Uh, because what it, it's doing is it's allowing an incredible variety of questions to be asked across an incredible variety of domains by anybody. In fact, ChatGPT, it's a software in the cloud. It operates in a supercomputer in the cloud. When ChatGPT was released, it went from zero to one million users in one week. That tells you something about the, the proliferation, of, if you like, of the appetite to use it, to do something with it. I would say that's that's a pivot. I mean, it's a pivot in history. It's an interesting, it's an interesting indication that we're now on the cusp of what I called before, and I'll call again. We're on the cusp of making computing actually useful. By that, I mean making computers semantically addressable, recognizing context, and coming back with ideas, information, responses, or advice that are context relevant that don't require you to type into a box that don't require you to. Be very careful how you frame exactly what you are asking it. It's adding a level of utility, of ease of use. That is the equivalent of going from you know, a one-stop stunt on an airplane across the Atlantic to the kinds of flying that we've become accustomed to in the modern era. So it's a big deal. Uh, as an aside, before talking more about artificial intelligence, you might 
be wondering, where did ChatGPT come from? Who did it? It was produced by a research outfit called OpenAI, Artificial Intelligence. OpenAI was founded, co-founded by a Silicon Valley investor and potentate, Sam Altman, and, you know, drum roll by Elon Musk. Who knew, right? Maybe you knew. <laughs> and funded early on, uh, secretly, it's now public knowledge, with a billion dollars from Microsoft. So uh, it tells you not only a lot about who the players are, but what they have what they have in mind. It's about democratizing artificial intelligence in a useful way and just making a sort of step function. It's not too much of a uh, it's not too much of a stretch to say that when Elon Musk introduced the Tesla S sedan, he sort of changed the zeitgeist of the automotive industry. But I would I would ha- I would say that his funding of ChatGPT, OpenAI, is more consequential and will have longer legs and bigger economic impact than his funding of uh, batteries for electric cars. I mean, artificial intelligence is a fundamentally different kind of tool, whereas an electric car is still a car, as I've said in previous podcasts. It's still a car. Whether you fuel it with alcohol that you should be drinking instead of burning, or whether you fuel it with batteries, diesel fuel, or gasoline, it doesn't make any difference. It's still a car. It's economic utility. It's still a car. So the revolution of the invention of the car was when the car was invented and proliferated in the 20s. Feeding a different food is meaningful, but it's not a revolution. What Elon Musk has done with uh, funding ChatGPT, with Sam Altman, is arguably the equivalent of the invention of the, the Model T. Right there's been there's been AI around and available for a number of decades now, and there were cars for three decades before the Model T. The Model T democratized the automobile. Software tools like ChatGPT democratize artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not a specific tool per se, but it's a broad class of tools. It's it's an umbrella term. Uh, it's a way of having machines learn, hence machine learning, and have machines, computing machines, help with everything it's already being used for, purchasing preferences, where do I want to travel? But you, you, want it, you want it to recognize context and complex patterns and give advice. The complexity and scale of the world we live in, the complexity and scale of nature, it's just made it extremely difficult to make machines good enough to handle the, the scale of the complexity, the scale of everyday life, the scale of nature, if you like. And just like all tools, I mean, there are different kinds of tools for different kinds of specific tasks. So the idea of AI as a umbrella term isn't very helpful in the sense it's like saying a vehicle is is an umbrella term. Well, it is, there's classes of vehicles, but submarines, rocket ships, bicycles, and um, cars are very different tools, self-evidently, but they're all vehicles. Artificial intelligence is a category, a lot like saying vehicle. And artificial intelligence as an engine, the artificial intelligence is made possible by engines just like vehicles are, and they're very different engines. The submarines have very different engines from cars and airplanes, but they're all engines that are at the core of making the vehicle possible. Similarly, artificial intelligence engines, the so-called computer chips that make possible AI, are very are widely varied uh, in both size, complexity, and power, and, and they're used for very different things. And so at the core of all of these things are engines, 
tools, which I'll talk more about in a second, to do inference instead of calculation, instead of computing. So artificial, the, if you if we wanted to find the biggest difference, the core difference between artificial intelligence and computation, computers used for computation, is that it's not computing spreadsheets where you have a specific answer that's correct in finance or in uh, in putting together whatever the data are in a spreadsheet. Those are computations. Inference is difference, and you know it when you say the word. It's, there's not a specific or exact answer. There's a advice as to, for example, a route you want to take, or advice at looking at images of an X-ray to say that looks like looks like something is wrong here, or there's nothing wrong here. There's not a specific answer that's calculated, but rather an idea or an inference, which is comes from a constellation of inputs, da- images, data, behaviors trajectories and all the rest. As I've said before, the problem with the term artificial intelligence is that it's just a sloppy term. It's 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 like calling a car an artificial horse uh, or an airplane an artificial bird uh, or an electric motor artificial water wheel. The, the functions overlap. They're obviously profoundly different. But what's critical is that the step function that ChatGPT represents is a step function in its democratization of the tool being more useful to more people. And it will get a lot better. It's not, it's people who use it, are already using it regularly, they've already discovered its limits. Uh, it ha- It's from the viewpoint of what we expect, humans expect from answers to questions that are very complex, it's quite limited and its prose is you know pretty pedantic, but then so is, so is a lot of the prose and things written by a lot of students these days. A lot of teachers are anxious about what this means for cheating on tests because you could just have GPT write an essay, you know, if you get an assignment to write an essay about the voyages of Captain Cook, just ask GPT to write a thousand word essay on the voyages of Captain Cook. Uh, and it'll spit something back that'll be accurate um, and thousand words long and pretty accurate. It won't be hundred percent accurate. Many times it gets timelines messed up, but it's pretty good. Certainly, certainly C plus B, B plus work, depending on the, the teacher. And the question you'd have is, well, how do I teach my students? Well, you ask them to write that essay in class while you're watching them. So they're not using, so they're not connected to the internet using chat GPT. Uh, there's a lot of ways to teach without, without worrying about whether or not students are cheating. It'll just, it probably will change how teachers have to teach, but that's been coming for a long time anyway, with, with what the internet offers. Anyway, back, back to what's going on. So what's happening now is that we're, we're seeing this, this tipping point where there's the chat GPT is the evidence of something that's been going on for a few years. There's been a kind of a land rush of activity to develop uh, mission-specific machine learning algorithms, AI, to train very powerful supercomputers um, to recognize images, whether not images of kitty cats, but you know, X-ray images or images of uh, of you know, mold on 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 uh, wheat, so that you could overfly a wheat field with a drone with a camera, and the AI engine will have learned how to recognize through machine learning a mold on uh, on the on the wheat that's growing in the fields and uh, let the farmer know early on what to do and where to do it. Very useful tool. That kind of machine learning is, is takes an astonishing amount of computer horsepower, which we now have, and allows very useful functions like of the kind I just described. Uh, as a, as a, uh, 
is an indication of how fast this business has been expanding, the business of training computers, using machine learning to train uh, software to recognize patterns for specific tasks. The artificial intelligence community has been uh, using computing power at an incredible rate. I mean, the the amount of compute power you measured, because you can measure it in bits, you can measure it in a lot of ways, but bits are typical. The amount of compute power dedicated to teaching artificial intelligence engines how to recognize things, so to engage in machine learning. The amount of computing horsepower dedicated to that has been increasing 300,000 fold in the past, uh, per year, by the way, in the past uh, six years. There's been this 300,000 fold increase in the amount of compute horsepower directed at training computers, software, AI, to recognize patterns in order to make useful tools, AI tools like ChatGPT. There's plenty of others like it. Uh, is, is, it should not be surprising for those of you who know that I talk and write a lot about energy that I've also looked at the energy implications of that. So just give you a calibration as another aside. If you if you uh, run just one uh, hyper-realistic simulation, let's say, of molecular interactions of viruses and, and, and vaccines on a supercomputer, which is you want to teach the computer to behave like a virus or behave like a vaccine, which is how you develop vaccines in a computer. You teach the computer to behave like a virus or a vaccine. So running a simulation like that just once uses as much energy as flying a jumbo jet um, from New York to uh, Hong Kong. And uh, that's just one simulation. You know that whether it's in research or whether it's in, in uh, industry, we're going to be running thousands of simulations like that. So put differently, we're going to be do it using as much energy to run simulations to teach computers as we use to fly people across the Atlantic and Pacific. So it's a, uh, it's pretty exciting. It's, I mean, it's exciting. I don't, as you know, I don't worry about the energy implications, although they're interesting, they do tell you something. And, and I would say that the energy implications are ones that are causing anxiety in the computing community because they they worry about the, uh, you know, you can imagine they worry about the quote, climate impact. They should take some comfort in the fact that the, the computers, uh, especially machine learning computers are getting fantastically more efficient. That's what engineers do. They make, they make machines more efficient. And by making them more efficient, we'll use more of them. Uh, the, the first transatlantic uh, commercial flight that Pan Am flew in 1958, I mean, it, it used a lot, a lot more fuel than aircraft today. In fact, it used in passenger mile equivalent, which is the way you would look at any you know, fuel use. It's about uh, 300% more efficient today than in 1958. If that weren't the case, there wouldn't be so many people flying because it, aviation would use too much fuel. The fact that it got 300% more efficient meant that more people could fly. So we went from a few thousand passenger miles flown a year across the Atlantic to trillions of passenger miles now being flown around the world. And the consequence of that is that oil use for aviation went from nearly nothing, well, to about, you know, something on the order of 4 billion barrels of oil a year just to fly places in the world. Anyway, that's the relevance there to AI is that AI is going to get more than 300% more efficient in the next few years. In fact, it's already um, far more efficient than it was just when ChatGPT started. I, to give you an example, how much more efficient it's already 
already become. Uh, let's consider the next generation of AI chip, the uh, Cerebrus uh, chip. Uh, Cerebrus is a company, private company, uh, which um, I would like to point out in some small irony, was also funded in part by Elon Musk. So the Cerebrus uh, company has come out with last year a new class of AI chip. It's a chip that's the size of a dinner plate. I think I've talked about this in previous podcasts, but for those who haven't heard that podcast, this is a, a chip, again, the size of a small pizza, the size of a dinner plate. It's a single chip. Uh, it's a chip designed for artificial intelligence, for machine learning, to do specifically things like what ChatGPT does or to recognize X-ray images to help doctors or to play video games, if you like. Uh, the single Cerebus chip is got on it some 2.6 trillion transistors. Uh, a typical machine learning chip from NVIDIA has several billions of transistors. Uh, and the single Cerebus chip is, in computer terms, is 10,000 times more powerful than the, the fastest uh, AI learning chip available from anybody else on the planet. In fact, if you put 16 of the Cerebus chips together, just 16 of them, it leads to, and they've done that, by the way, they announced at the end of last year that Cerebus did, it leads to a supercomputer that has as much compute power as the world's most powerful supercomputer at the Oak Ridge National Labs for the Defense Department. The Cerebus chip-based computer with 16 Cerebus chips costs about $35 million and consumes about two megawatts of power, which is a lot of power, right? But the supercomputer that it matches, the biggest, the best the government has ever been able to make, the most powerful in the world until now, it didn't cost $35 million, it cost $600 million and uses 20 megawatts of power as much as a jumbo jet. So what's happened already in just the few years that, that ChatGPT went from stealth to public is that the efficiency, uh, both cost efficiency and power efficiency of machine learning chips improved a thousand percent. Will we? Will that mean we'll use a thousand percent less energy to do machine learning and play games with ChatGPT? Yeah, per task, per task, right? It will. So writing, writing a uh, a cute blurb for a cruise in Shakespearean English in a fraction of a second will still take a fraction of a second, but it'll use a thousand percent less energy, cost a thousand percent less. But I'll take the bet. We won't see a thousand percent increase in the use of such algorithms. We'll see a million percent increase in the use of such algorithms. That's that's the direction of. Computing, it's the direction of artificial intelligence and machine learning computing. And it's a pivot when you make those kinds of step function changes, both in the functionality of the software, ChatGPT, and the underlying engine that makes the software powerful. So when you when when you hear um, people use the expression, which is a horrifically silly expression, this changes everything, it gets overused because very few things, quote, change everything. But the invention of the car, it did change everything in transportation. So did the invention of the commercial airplane. And I, I, I would say that, um, in a sense, the hype about chat GPT understates the impact of what's about to begin. Uh, it will take a little while. These things don't roll out with a flick of a switch. Chat GPT is still limited in its uh, functionality, but it's indication both of where the world is going and that we've, we're on the we're on the tipping point. Again, we're we're at 
we're at a point that's more like a Model T or Model T for artificial intelligence, uh, rather than the you know the very first the very first cars. And it it will what will what will we do with ChatGPT? What the, what are the implications? Well, you know you know the answer to this. It's the same of all forms of automation. It adds productivity. It improves the efficacy of doing all kinds of tasks. In this case, knowledge tasks, right? The knowledge work class of of tasks, as opposed to the manual work class of tasks. This is what we've been trying to do uh, for all of human history. We want to bring improved efficiency to the performance of all kinds of tasks. What's different this time, what's got the chattering classes excited and anxious is that and these are the same, the same people that don't really worry very much when automation takes away manual labor, but they seem to worry a lot when automation replaces, we'll call it intellectual labor to the extent it's intellectual or knowledge work. This is this is not a new phenomena. Uh, during the Great Depression, um, the industrial workers uh, union uh, published a manifesto uh, that was a, a communist uh, union, by the way. I mean, literally, I don't mean it's invective. Uh, they they published a manifesto at the, the time of the Great Depression, pointing out that that um, the automation, the use of machines in industry was responsible for unemployment. And they blamed capitalism and engineers as being and I quote, capitalist tools uh, for causing increased uh, unemployment and eroding the power of the workers' unions to negotiate because the machine tools uh, were reducing labor inputs. And they were right about the the latter. The machines, automation, were already at that time, this was at the beginning of, of the automation of the industrial age at the turn of the 20th century, they were already uh, profoundly uh, amplifying the efficacy of human labor. From 1910 to 1930, the number of la labor hours needed to make an automobile uh, dropped by 400%. It was a fourfold drop in labor hours to make a single car. And the labor hours needed to make a ton of steel dropped sevenfold over that same period. That was because of technological automation in the world of labor. Uh, that led to a lot of disruption, of course. It led to anxieties, of course, but it didn't lead to unemployment. In fact, it led to net increase in employment and net increase in wealth over time. I'm not, I'm not uh, belittling or ignoring the disruptive effects of changes in labor markets. They they are significant. They are relevant. They're important. Uh, but the point, the broad point being made, that when we automate something, that we we lose work, we increase unemployment. That claim has been made for a century and it's been wrong for a century. What's happened is we've come to a point in time today to our time when we face the exact opposite problem. We have we have more jobs than we have people willing and able to take those jobs in all classes of work. And that's the key here. This is where the relevance comes in for a chat GPT and artificial intelligence. The point of automation in the industrial sector on manual tasks is to get more output from less input, especially labor input. That hasn't led to unemployment. But we're being told that when we do the same for knowledge work, we're going to get rampant unemployment. No, we're not. We're going to change the nature of employment, just as we change the nature of farming. There are far fewer farmers doing routine farming work than there were at any time in history, but we produce more food and we have everybody fully employed that wants to be employed. 
fundamentally speaking in the country today, if you want a job, you can get a job. I mean, broadly speaking, because there's more jobs being advertised and our people only take it. But the chattering classes think that we come after the their work, the cognitive tasks, that this is going to be different. It's not going to be different. In fact, it's, it's really good news that we've got a useful, uh, we'll call it cognitive automation coming. I'll give you, I'll tell you exactly why. I mean, other than you know, at the at the high level of abstraction, it's because we, again, I'll state it again, we have, despite the Fed's best effort to raise interest rates to kill the economy, to cause unemployment, that's not happening. Why is it not happening? Because we're in, we're in severe underemployment. And until the severe underemployment ends, and that won't, and absent a great depression, but if we don't get a de- great depression, we're not going to, we're not going to end the underemployment because demographically, we have fewer people available to work of a specific working age, and we have more demand for the products and services globally. So we have this labor gap. The way you fix the labor gap problem, both in the physical trades and the cognitive trades, is with more automation. You make the people willing and able to work more productive. This should be beyond obvious. That's that's the fact that we have both robots, as I talked about in my previous podcast, coming along to amplify the skilled trades couldn't come at a more important time. The same is true for, we'll call it the cognitive trades, the knowledge workers, the, although that's a, such a silly such a silly phrase, knowledge worker. You need knowledge to do any job, including running a backhoe. But, but we all know what we mean by the two tasks. R- running the backhoe requires knowledge, but it requires physical skill. Um, managing the accounts in the back office for all the backhoes and not operating them is, of course, a knowledge worker task. It's a cognitive task, figuring out when to when to schedule maintenance, not to do the maintenance, when to order parts, not to put the parts in. That's the knowledge work part, obviously. What's interesting is if we dissect the labor force, which the Federal Reserve uh, uh, analysts have done, if we dissect the labor force into two buckets, the cognitive tasks, that's what they call not knowledge work, which is the better phrase, and the um, manual tasks. We have manual tasks, manual labor, manual tasks, cognitive tasks. And within each of those, you do an additional separation to two kinds of work for both categories, routine and non-routine. So routine manual labor, non-routine manual labor, routine cognitive tasks, non-routine cognitive tasks. When you make that bifurcation, there's something very interesting is going on. From 1980 to date, so over the last 45 years or so, so almost half century, in absolute number terms in the United States, there's there's essentially the same number of people doing routine cognitive work and routine manual labor. That is, there's been a very, there's been a sense, there's about 30 million people in each of those categories. No, no growth. There's not, there's not been an increased number of people doing that, those tasks. Whereas the non-routine manual labor, the number of people doing that kind of work has increased from 15 million to 30 million people. And the non-routine cognitive tasks, the number of people employed that way have gone from 30 million to 60 million. So all of the growth in both job categories, manual and cognitive, all of the growth has been in the non-routine. So that, or put differently, all the demand to find new employees whether it's in manual work or cognitive work, has been for the non-routine class of tasks in both categories. All right. The easiest thing to automate, whether it's in the manual domains or the cognitive domains, are the routine ones. 
Those are easier to automate. That's in fact what gets automated first. Chat GPT can can do the so the routine uh, kind of narrative outlines, if you like, for a story very easily. It's not very imaginative, but it can do the routine stuff pretty darn easily. So can a lot of robots do the routine stuff easily. So the advent of both physical robots that can do routine tasks and virtual robots like Chat GPT that can do routine cognitive tasks. The advent of those kinds of those forms of automation couldn't come at a better time. We can we can automate and, and take people out of the category of work that's not growing, the, the routine, and then upskill and make them available to do the kinds of tasks for which there's a shortage of labor, which are the non-routine manual and non-routine cognitive tasks. This is this is actually we're in a sense we're just lucky that it's come. It's come at this time. And so in, in labor terms, this, this is uh, extraordinarily bullish for seeing a boost in productivity of our economy because so much of our economy is driven by cognitive tasks that are both routine and non-routine. And wouldn't it be nice if the people that are doing the routine stuff could do less of that and do more of the non-routine stuff, generally because it's more interesting and it's also higher paid. So the automation uh, at a lower cost as a routine and the uh, automation allows those who are doing the non-routine to do it better and get paid more. It is a literally, in every sense of the word, a win-win. So, in the advent of the Cerberus chip, this monster pizza plate, pizza-sized uh, computer chip that has collapsed the cost of machine learning by tenfold, couldn't come at a better time. Uh, it's it's not a product that has been uh, democratized yet, but it will be democratized through the through the cloud because that's where those computer chips will reside. They're not gonna be in your computer because they're bigger than your computer. They'll be in the cloud. You'll be able to talk to them and use them. It will it will change the game. It's, it, is, it is in fact a big deal that ChatGPT has come along. It's also a big deal, by the way, uh, it's a subject for another podcast uh, at a future time uh, for basic research and development because so much of what scientists do and I as some of you know I was I was once I guess if, if you're always if you once were a scientist you're kind of sort of always a scientist but I don't I don't do real science anymore but I did work at one point in my early career as a scientist and any scientist will tell you any engineer will tell you I did work as an engineer as well that an awful lot of what you do lots of what you do is routine. I mean, you know, the, the stuff that's really exciting, the the aha moments things and all, all come after after you do when you're doing it, whether you're doing an experiment, whether you're building something, there's there's not just a lot of routine manual tasks, there's a lot of routine cognitive tasks. It would be great if if uh, those could be made easier, faster, better. And that's exactly what artificial intelligence is, things like chat GPT do. It it's a it's a uh, amplification of uh, artificial intelligence in that form is an amplification, both of the means of invention, but also call it the means of discovery. You know, Britain's, uh, an economist in Britain, Nicholas Kraft, Crafts has been uh, eloquent on this. And maybe I can get him on a podcast in the future. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can reach out to him if he'll, if he'll join me. I would love to chat with him. He's given lectures on the fact, and he's right, that what artificial intelligence is offering, and his phrase, which is an economist phrase, is better ideas, uh, better ideas production function. Yeah. Don't you love technical, technical phraseology? Basically, an amplifier for ideas, for developing ideas. 
But what he's also pointed out is that it takes a while to bring radically new tools into broad use because it it requires different infrastructures, different modes of operation, different, again, um, again, simplistic analogy. Traveling from train from city to city uh, versus airplanes, the airplanes require different infrastructure. They require airports. They require air traffic control systems. They require weather forecasting, things things that uh, trains don't require. Uh, it took a while to build those infrastructures and make them useful. Not not a century, but it took years. Uh, it certainly took a decade. And that's the decade we're beginning now of building out the infrastructure of AI, both in terms of the physical infrastructure and how businesses, teachers, organizations, researchers adapt to the new tool. You find ways to use the tool productively. It's inevitable that the initial uses of tools can be unproductive or or even silly or not good enough because the tool's not good enough. Uh, it was very difficult to fly transatlantic early on because the aircraft didn't have the the fuel range to carry lots of people, uh, the capability to carry lots of people nonstop. So you know, flying overseas was kind of annoying uh, and limited, expensive because you had to stop so many times. And then the technology got better. We are where we are. That's, that's again, the analogy is relevant to the infrastructure, the technology, and hardware of AI. Um, so it's a big deal. Uh, I think it's a big deal in uh, in ways that are poorly understood. And, and I think it's a there are some there are some risks. Uh, Corey uh, Dockerow, you know, science fiction writer, and uh, he was began life as a, I believe as a computer programmer, was interviewed recently in the New Yorker. And to talk about uh, computers, where they're going, and artificial intelligence, and big tech. Uh, he's a very, a very smart guy. Um, he was asked specifically whether he thought that concerns about AI uh, expanding capabilities were misplaced, and he wasn't worried about it. He, well, it's not true. He was worried about something specific that people are not talking about. And what what I've what I've alluded to, he said. And let me quote him. I think that the problems of AI are not its ability to do things well, but its ability ability to do things badly. <laughs> that's a very clever phrase. So, oh, that's put differently. The misapplication of any tool can cause a problem. To, doing things badly means that you've used the tool improperly. Uh, using it, relying on a tool to do something that somebody, a person should do, or relying on a tool exclusively without human supervision can be a bad thing. That's sort of what he's flagging. So I think we're going to have a, a learning period. I suspect that the learning period pretty quick because you know we've gotten better at uh, figuring out how to learn how to use tools. And in, in, in a sort of a interesting pull up by the bootstrap, bootstraps way, uh, AI itself will help us uh, learn how to use itself, use the tool more rapidly because we can use it in kind of a, if you like, in a virtuous circle to figure out where it has value and where it doesn't have value, where it's doing something silly or dangerous versus where it's doing something useful. One thing AI can do, by the way, it's already been demonstrated. Not only can it write computer code that you can ask in English, semant sort of semantic web uh, for the AI chatbot to write code for you so you don't have to be a coder. Maybe more important and is that AI engines can find bugs, find flaws in computer code and assist in doing that as well, maybe better than humans because it's a really boring task. And what computers are really good at are doing really boring tasks 
And just like robots are often good at doing really boring tasks better than people. People get bored and that's when mistakes happen. Uh, Chatbots and uh, and robots may be boring, but they don't get bored. So that's it. Uh, it will be a very interesting um, next five to 10 years, I think. It's going to be a an efflorescence of silliness and an efflorescence of great opportunity. Both both are going to happen. The silliness will come first. The opportunities will follow because the technologies really are genuinely powerful. And it really is a genuine pivot. No, that's enough about artificial intelligence for now. Uh, I'm going to close by, again, reminding you, if you're listening to this podcast and you like them, I give us a rating. Obviously, we like favorable ratings. And uh, I'm open to questions, uh, suggestions. I still haven't done a Q&A podcast in recent months. I guess it's I'm overdue. I'll do one and uh, get caught up with things that people are asking, especially about chat GPT and electric cars and the energy revolution, all, all this stuff. There's lots, lots of questions to answer that I haven't addressed in my podcast. So I'll get to that in future podcasts. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. <laughs>